0: Okay, well, welcome, dear listeners, to another edition of the Jacobs Podcast. On this episode, we'll cover networks and hierarchies. But just before we get to that, today is a a great milestone, and that is reaching episode twenty of the podcast. I'm really stoked to get here, um, and I think I've improved a lot from episode one, which is um, very good. And um, a couple of the good, the better episodes I've had, or the most popular ones we've had, have been. Um, The winners don't cheat one on the, on my book. Uh, so there's a couple of episodes ago. And the one that really stuck out to me was could a hawk, Keating or Howard survive today? And that's been intensely popular. So, um, I'm really stoked to get to episode 20, as I mentioned. And I'm really thankful for the listeners and, uh, you know, and also having good guests as well. And speaking of good guests, um, I'm joined by Jordan Shopov, founder of Wig Capital Management. Jordan, welcome back to the podcast.
1: Thanks, Sean. You're making me blush. Stop it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and, of course, Will Witheridge, who joins us uh, from New York, and Will is a PhD economics um, student at NYU. So, Will, welcome to the Jaguars podcast. Welcome back.
2: Great to be back, and congratulations on episode 20,
0: Sean. Oh, well, thanks very much, and thanks for coming along on the journey with me, folks. Really appreciate it. <laughs>
2: Hey Sean, what's
1: what's your favorite episode of the twenty? Have you got a favorite?
0: Um, look, they're all. I don't want to offend anyone or any of the guests, but the two that I mentioned have been pretty. Names. <laughs> Sorry, say that again, Jordan.
1: Name name names. <laughs> oh
0: gosh, no. Look, like I mentioned, I, I really like the one that we did last time on um, all all three of us together and could a Hawk Keating or Howard survive today? I think that was a really good discussion and probably one that you know you could. Branch hop. I think most of the episodes you can have sub episodes of about 10 that are worth 10 podcasts themselves. So um, they've been, yeah, all of them have been pretty great. And um, again, I'm just very thankful for all the listeners out there too who are tuning in and sending feedback and getting in touch and listening and saying subscribed and rating. It's, um, it's really good. Um, how about yourself, Jordan? Any, any favourites jump out to you? Um,
1: I particularly enjoyed your latest one just because the, I thought you, it's hard to do a solo one, and I thought you did a pretty good job of that. And uh, um, I really enjoyed the one that we did together on, um, in Queensland on your book. That was a lot of fun. I think doing it in person was, yeah, it changes our d- dynamics a bit. I'd love it if the yep. three of us could do one together. I, you know, if we ever see each other again, we definitely have to find a topic to do it. I think, uh, yeah, it's just a bit more easier doing it in person but then in terms of covering, like going into depth in a topic, I thought the one on politics on Hawk and Keating we did was, yeah, it was really good, but we covered some pretty interesting ground and yeah, hopefully we can do that again.
0: Definitely. And just yeah. quickly, just uh, I, I know the um, the monologue one was one I just literally belted out, um, you know, to be brutally honest, just one morning. I just started talking into the mic and then um, I just came up with an episode, so it it's sort of uh, tweaks or levels of amateurness but um, yeah thanks for that
2: yeah I was gonna say that I really enjoyed the one uh, early on that that you guys did on the podcast on podcasts and that yeah. was I thought that was really really great to um, to hear some um, some different ideas of discussions which are, are going on and um,
0: yeah it was it was a nice little uh, little meta idea and and I really enjoyed it definitely and there's some Great podcasts out there, and speaking of podcasts, we'd better get into this one. As mentioned, we're going to do Networks and Hierarchies, and it's based on a recent book by the historian Niall Ferguson, The Square and the Tower, um, Networks and Power, from the Freemasons to Facebook. Um, But you don't need to have read the book, of course, to enjoy today's conversation. If, like many people, you're on social media, Facebook, Twitter or Instagram, you're part of a network but you're also a member of many other networks as well. Um, And everyone, of course, would have encountered hierarchies uh, by contrast. So, for example, if you've been an employee with a boss in an organisation or you've interacted with the Department of Motor Vehicles and been wrapped in red tape, um, you've certainly encountered a government bureaucracy, um, another example of a a hierarchy. Um, So, of course, we're going to explore some of the impacts that networks and hierarchies have in our lives and how they shape our world and just looking back at the past but then also at the current moment. So just to kick us off, I think it's just important to make this distinction, I've just outlined that briefly, but between a network and a hierarchy. Um, Jordan, can you just take us through what your thoughts on the difference are? Yeah,
1: sure. So um, the distinction between hierarchies and networks from my reading of his of Noel Ferguson's book, is actually a bit of a misnomer. So he kind of points out in the early chapters that all hierarchies have networks, and all networks have hierarchies. And it's sort of the the extent. Think of it almost like a spectrum. It's like towards is is it more networked or more hierarchical as a system? And so it's really a, it's a really a, an, ex, an exploration of complex systems and the way I would. Um, segment them is more about decentralization and centralization or uh, bottom-up and top-down systems. I think that's, um that's what a network and a hierarchy is and the book is essentially a sort of a, a broad survey of how uh, those systems the interplay between those types of systems throughout throughout um, modern and ancient history.
0: So you'd say it's, it's uh, a hierarchy centralized whereas a network is decentralized.
1: Yeah, and and things. Yeah, a decentralized system change comes from the bottom up, whilst a centralized system change comes from the top down. And I think the the most common analogy that people can relate to is like the centralized hierarchy of a corporation or a government entity, where orders come from the top down, or a market uh, at the other end of the extreme, where change is from the bottom up through the interaction of participants in the market itself. That's like an easy. Um, contrast between the two.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I know from um, past episodes, and listeners would know that you're definitely a network man. It appear I would I would presume, um, and a bottom up kind of guy. Um, but Will, do you have anything to add there um, in terms of the distinction between the two?
2: Yeah, just to to build on that, it is. Um, you know, this we are talking about a, a spectrum of uh, situations and having. Characteristics of more like a network or more like a hierarchy, and hierarchies have that that chain of command in that there's this um, this up and down in different levels. So you know you can think about the army as being uh, being an example of a hierarchy in which there's orders that flow uh, from the top down, and, and uh, networks could be uh, things like between friends or as you know in a, in a community in a a school or something like that there's there's that sort of uh uh, balance and and egalitarian nature to it and of course other things can mix uh, the two of these so for example you know in your work if you're working in an organization you'll be part of a hierarchy of having managers or bosses or or being a manager yourself and having subordinates but you'll also have you know, colleagues uh, at your level and friends within the organisation. And so there's this kind of blending of uh, networks and hierarchies within, uh, within a, a work type orga- organisation. So that's a bit, a bit more about these, uh, the, the distinction between these two. But we're, we're really talking about human connections between, between people and the shape that those uh, interactions take.
0: Yeah, definitely. One of the things that's helped me with the distinction is just you can think of a family too as a as a network, um, and you know we do hear a lot now about that we live in a networked age, and people sort of love to use that term. You know, internet, social media, technology, and you know you look at Google, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, and again this term just keeps coming back. But um, I note in the book that Ferguson actually compares the current period to when books became popular and the invention of the Gutenberg uh, printing press um, so John what do you re- make of this comparison um, so looking back at history there's always an analogy somewhere and then this one seems to be pretty apt for networks and hierarchies
1: yeah and you've tapped into um, a, something I think uh, Ferguson takes a lot of pride in with his with his the way he looks at history he calls it applied history and he's looking for Comparable, um, comparable periods where you can draw analogies to the modern day and sort of learn from history in a way. So that, yeah, that era with the printing press is, I think, an apt analogy, and it's kind of parallels the rise of the personal computer and the and the internet and essentially, or the way I the way I interpret his work and think about it is that you've got a moment in time. Where networks and decentralised systems are becoming more important, and that means a level of increased competition, a level of openness and various angles where you have new ideas and uh, competition among those ideas, lots more trial and error, and this can be both good and bad because you get competing views, and, yeah, I think there's a sort of implicit warning in in Ferguson's thesis that printing press um, led to, like, a lot of political revolution and all of crazy things like witchcraft and the spread of, um, you know, nonsense as well as good ideas. And I think he's trying to say that the rise of the computer and the internet could presage uh, similar types of um, revolution or change. Um, and you're beginning to see that, like the way ISIS took advantage of social media and stuff like that. So,
0: yeah, I think it's,
1: I think it's a correct analogy and it's a pretty interesting uh, question to put up.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I think one of the interesting things, too, is that the comparison in declines in price. So, um, you know, the decline in the price of a PC between you know, the late 70s and the early 2000s apparently followed a pretty similar trajectory to the decline in the price of books between um, the late 1400s and then the early 1600s. And that's a really interesting comparison there. Um, obviously, quite different timescales but just it's a, it's an interesting point on the the um the dip in price. Um but I think as well, as much as we talk about a networked age, there's also um, you know, a lot of talk on hierarchies and especially in human history in the in the twentieth century that hierarchies were actually quite central. So Will, what are your thoughts on here? Can you just talk us through um, some of the big changes between or throughout the 1900s and now?
2: Yeah, so the, the early 20th century is a period in which it seems like hierarchies really dominated. I think internationally, with the, the central powers in, uh, in, in geopolitics, you know, there's a number of totalitarian regimes, these really powerful hierarchies which present, prevented uh, social networks and uprisings from developing. And even in um, even in democracies like, uh, like Britain and the US, these are really uh, centralized economies and also ones in which you know, uh, uh, the government mobilized large numbers of citizens to fight in, in two world wars. So as well as that on the, the government side, you know, the, the economies at that time were generally dominated by large corporations in, in industries like cars and steel finance and, and the news media so it seems like there's a strong role for uh, hierarchies in that in that period and i think the the stark contrast with currently is the the nature of communications at uh, at that time versus the present so in the in the early 20th century the the communications media were things like news uh newspapers television radio and cinema and these are very one way forms of communication and interaction from the, the content provider to the listener. Now in contrast to now where, uh, communications, uh, are much more rapid and there's this, uh, quick interchange. It's, uh, it's two way. And I think that is, uh, you know, a real difference in the, the way that, um, we engage with each other and with, uh, the sort of broader society. So, uh, you know, that that's one big distinction and now these uh platforms like facebook and uh, and twitter there's this quick interplay and they uh don't lend themselves to a central control or or order and so they make them uh, harder to harder to monitor but uh, w- one thing that's interesting uh about this is that there seems to be a sort of hierarchy of networks in the the current uh the current period in which you know, there are certain platforms which dominate in certain forms of uh, forms of the, the economy. So, thinking about Google dominating search, Amazon dominating online retail, uh, Facebook, and social media, and so on, that's kind of an interesting um, uh, seeming sort of paradox that uh, in this in this networked era, there's you know this, these um, central or sort of key nodes
0: uh, on which these uh, these interactions are happening yeah for sure and I know as well that looking at hierarchies the 19th century too uh, was also you know an age of of hierarchies as well and it is interesting how hierarchies as you mentioned at the start there will do provide some of that stability um, and you know that you look at the 19th century for example and there's talk about the five hubs so um, you know, the German Reich, the Kingdom of Italy, Belgium, Bulgaria, Greece, Romania, and Serbia, and just how important that has been for stability. So kingdoms and hierarchies and having that order. But at the same time, of course, networks, like you mentioned, there's so much more of that that capacity for quick changes now um, with technology and capitalism and innovation and those sorts of things. So networks do drive a lot of the change and especially political revolutions. Um, Jordan, what are your sort of thoughts in that respect? Um, Do you just want to touch on that?
1: Yeah, I think it's um, just thinking about Twitter and Facebook that you mentioned, Will. One thing I was kind of wrestling with as I was reading the book was whether or not those types of companies, I mean, I think because Noel Ferguson clearly doesn't, he's not too not too much of a fan of them. And my big thing I was thinking about, though, is whether or not they are actually nodes in the network or the infrastructure of the network. And I think it's really important because if they're a central node, then they have a lot more authority and power, I guess, whilst if they're just a platform, then they're not really – I don't know, it's a different different role. I'm not quite sure how that works. I think if they are the infrastructure that creates the network, then I think they're much more valuable – and worthwhile than he's giving them credit for because then no, the network wouldn't accept, exist without them. And then you think, well, they are probably very beneficial and explains why they're such valuable companies. So I think there's, I think that's an in, important distinction to make. And the other thing that kind of struck me, you know, just thinking about what you said and, and reading the book as well, is when is it appropriate for a system to be more networked and when is it more appropriate to be more hierarchical? And um, I was thinking about um the work of an economist named Ronald Coase and his work around what's known as transaction costs. and as a bit of context his his um, his general general thesis was that it was he was trying to understand why um, some some economic resource allocation is done by markets and why some is left to companies, as in sometimes you have... Um, it's better for you to organize contracted labor, while sometimes it's better for you to employ labor. And his his general argument was that there's costs of transacting with the market itself, whether it's actually organizing contracts, figuring out the price, all those things. And depending on how high those transaction costs are, depends on whether or not you want to have hierarchies or you want to have market networks. And so I think that that trade-off is really interesting in terms of when you start looking at politics, and this, these broader questions. It's like, when when should things be more decentralised? When should they be more centralised?
0: Yeah, and um, one of the interesting things too is just, you know, for example, you look at we we're talking about at the start of the episode, the podcast. I mean, it's a great example of just lowering those transaction costs between you and someone, you know, who you interact with. I remember noting on previous episodes, for example, the amount of people you can just reach um, just... Um, almost quadruples versus actually writing a piece, putting it onto an online publication. An editor has a look at it. It gets posted up. You've got to go through the process of it. So it's not just sort of transaction costs, I guess, in terms of like, um, I guess, middle people, but just the transaction costs upon a consumer, the time it takes to get onto something, to interact with something as well. And uh, one of the interesting things too, I was reading about this the other day, um, was just that how, you know, Amazon, for example, operates very much like it's a hierarchical but it's a network at the same time. Very much, I think the key example of this is in consumer feedback and how important a premium that they place on, you know, if someone gives a bad rating or something like that for something, um, a lot of very hierarchical structures will uh, jump straight on that as a response to the sort of network and then play a bit of a network game themselves. In terms of you know responding, um, trying to put out the fire, offering something, or going okay, we'll fix this problem as soon as we possibly can. Um, that's just an interesting interaction about what we've been discussing around how a sort of network can exist within the hierarchy and how you know still having the need for hierarchies at the same time. Um, but yeah, just sort of interesting is an interesting sort of observation of the combination of the two.
1: What do you what do you guys think about this idea of whether or not Twitter and Facebook are actually nodes within the network or there's something different. Do you guys, do you, do you guys think about that or do you reckon I'm on off off tangent here?
2: Mm-hmm. I was, I was thinking, it's an interesting question, which you, you raised about how to, how to conceptualize this. And I was thinking that we could, we can, these are all on the internet, right? And that's a, that's a network. So, but, of course, there are certain sites on the internet that are ac- accessed much more than others, and those would be Google and Facebook. And so those are kind of these large hub-type nodes within the, the internet. And within those, there's obviously this this sort of network that, um, that sort of explodes within each. So, you know, on Facebook, then you have all your... Your Facebook friends within that, so that's how I think I'd I'd conceptualise them as being a um, being, you know, a node in the internet, and then within that, you know, containing a network of nodes. You know, you your Facebook friends. So it's like a hierarchy yeah. of
1: networks and networks within networks.
0: Yes. There you go. Incredibly complex, and I remember in the book, there's different. Um, you know, diagrams of different things and network trees, but they can get incredibly complex. And I think interesting as well is just uh, degrees of separation too and how, um, you know, depending on how well networked you are, the degree of separation collapses um, and then versus if you're not as well. And, you know, the more prominent position you hold, I forget the exact figures, um, your degree of separation goes down as well. And, um, yeah, I think that's just a, that's another interesting aspect of things too. I think at the same time, you know, as much as we do have networks, that there's also this capacity, even though you can have all of these different nodes everywhere, at the end of the day, there is an impulse or a desire to have um, some need for hierarchy too, um, you know, to appeal to some sort of authority whenever you've got to adjudicate a problem or Whenever something becomes like a certain activity, is sort of unsavory. There's always a need or a capacity for for some people appealing to rules. Like you, um, you know, a lot of these things can be self-regulating, of course. But I just think there's that sort of drive to actually, again, just have that appeal to to um, to go to a hierarchy. And I was just sort of interesting interested in you guys' thoughts about. 'Cause as networks sort of tend to evolve into hierarchies over time, it just seems to be this tendency. But what are your thoughts there? i was just ask you, Will, first, about why that actually happens or what your thoughts are on, on why that happens over time.
2: Yeah, it's an it's an interesting phenomena in that uh, you know, networks seem to attack hierarchies and cause this disruption, but then, you know, evolve and become hierarchies themselves. So there's examples of uh, communism in Russia and Nazism in Germany is being network phenomena that, uh, as they as they spread, became these much more rigid hierarchies over time. So, I think this is this is kind of natural and links back a bit to um, what uh, what Jordan was talking about about the um, the costs and benefits of um, of different types of organizing activity. So you could imagine just being in an, in an organization and when it's quite small and, you know, it's a, it's, think about a startup, you know, there it's a, it's a small team of people working together in this sort of, um, in this sort of small group exchanging information really, really quickly. But uh, if you were to try and have that on a, on a large, that type of model on a large scale organization with thousands of people, then there'd just be a, a huge, a huge amount of information uh, being spread and, and inundating everyone within that. So, if we're a, a larger organisation and trying to uh, be strategic and, and tactical and um, you know prosecuting some sort of uh, some sort of outcome, then there's benefits to coordinating activity, organising information flows. Uh, it, otherwise, it just becomes unwieldy. So that kind of order and structure, I think, uh, you know, is a, is a sort of natural. Evolution of um, of a network as it as it grows larger, and so obviously it's a you know, it's a struggle to maintain the sort of dynamism of a of, of a small small group in a larger organization, and, and that's one of the real challenges of of larger organizations. I think a you know a, a good example um, of a of a different type of network, which is uh, is a hierarchy, might be if we could think about like the human body. Now this is a this is something which has evolved over time, and um, you know it's a it's a, it's a network of, of um, uh, uh, sort of within us that we we all have, and, and yet there are there are all these organs that we uh, we need to live, but some are central, like our brain and our heart, and these are really fundamental and kind of uh, in a way dictate and and drive uh, other parts of our body, so. Um, I don't know if that if that makes sense, but I think that's a that's a different type of example in which uh, a hierarchical structure is beneficial.
0: Yeah, I like that idea of the body. It's a really good analogy. That um, and you know, obviously, some organs get more stressed out than others after a lot of drinks. For example, your liver takes a hit, <laughs> and I think that's probably when it gets pulled in a line a little bit by other parts of the body that sort of regulate it and and um, and sort of yeah, trim it down to size a little bit. But um, yeah, no, there's some good points there Well, I fully, you know, it's definitely expanded my thinking a lot because I always go to, when well, you know, when you talk about it's, you know, lowering transactional costs or having an organising structure, that's, you know, I was just sort of thinking, what's the benefit in knowing the difference between the two or combining the two? And I think there's a lot in that. If, you're organ- if you've got an organising structure, you've got goals and objectives of whatever you- you're running. I always think about... Conflict and like one of the good examples too that we've had recently is you know counterinsurgency operations in Iraq. Again, there's a great historical analogy there with the British in in Malaya in the 50s, and just in terms of America adopted, you know, um, these broad strokes here, but a a sort of hierarchical model, model. Pardon me, defining counterinsurgency. Or launching counterinsurgency operations in Iraq. Whereas what was more useful was a a networked approach, so using sort of loose affiliations of different groups, protecting the population, working among people, um, which the Brits adopted in Malaya. And that proved to be a lot more effective a model, um, you know, in Fallujah in places like Iraq that General Pacheus adopted there. Um, But Jordan, you know, so there's a couple of good examples. Will you? That was a good. On companies and company performance, and um, transaction costs and organising principles, um, and I like that idea of using it in the military context in terms of you know conflict and conflict reduction. Um, what are your thoughts as well, Jordan? Any any other ideas or examples on well, one just that idea of why they why networks form into hierarchies over time? But then, what are your thoughts as well, and just some of the other added benefits of knowing the distinction?
1: I think we'll point out one very important concept which is this idea of order and i think when you're looking at decentralized networks versus hierarchical structures they both produce a kind of order the the top-down centralized one is pretty obvious because it's it's dictated through there's like an authority and centralized power which creates an order but there's another order in types in the in the network itself it's like you've got all these competing bottom-up interactions which create like a spontaneous order. And I think that is a very interesting dynamic. It's like understanding when, when things should be coming from the top down and when things should be coming from the bottom up. And I, again, try and relate it back to a, a market-based example. Um, you think about when, when does it make sense? We talked about transaction costs. That makes sense in terms of having a centralized hierarchical structure of a company what are the what is the organizing ethos and it's kind of like the vision of the entrepreneur they see something which other people don't see they they kind of bring resources together to execute a vision that they think no one else no one else is taking advantage of and then the alternative is that you've got the market where all these different types of little centralized firms are competing against each other to create a spontaneous order it's like it's very yeah, you know, it's a very interesting like dynamic, and you can even apply that to politics. It's like, well, what's the organising ethos of a centralised hierarchical uh, government? And it's kind of like the it's the ethics of the of the of the uh, society itself. And I think that's a point that Deirdre McCloskey makes in her review of Noel Ferguson's book, which I really enjoyed reading. Which is like, it's a there's a certain legitimacy that has to come from a, a hierarchy, whether it's the ethics of the the polity. Or the vision of the entrepreneur, it's like I think that's one of the yeah I think that's a way of thinking about when the hierarchies make sense and when the um, networks make sense.
0: Yeah, and I think a good you know like the ethics of the policy is a great point. It's you, anyone will see this if you work in an organisation and then you have something thrust upon the organisation, um, so like a new code of ethics or um, some sort of bylaws or rules and regulate. They've got to have some correspondence with the norms and values of the people working within the organisations, otherwise it simply sort of won't work. And I think, again, not to be too conflict-focused, but that's why rule of law is just so difficult to transplant around, or I guess an idea of a Western notion of rule of law. It can be very tricky to just transplant to different parts of the world and put on um, various uh, cultures, I guess, if there's not any correspondence with as you mentioned, Jordan, the ethics of the polity, which I think is really important as well. Great. So, um, what are your thoughts too, Jordan there as well about why there's this impulse to um, evolve into a hierarchy? Um, What are are some of your, I guess, ideas around why that happens? Um, Do you have any practical examples of where you've seen that or where your observations are?
1: I've got uh, one thing I thought about with this uh, in terms of this you know when do hierarchies make sense when do networks make sense I was thinking about um, the great the great man theory of history and another another criticism of McCloskey of Ferguson was that he's too focused on key nodes in the network rather than the network itself and the example she uses of, of Kissinger and you know he does a pretty interesting job of showing Kissinger's network in the Nixon and Ford administrations and that was that's pretty interesting stuff but I think the point she's trying to make is that um not all not all change comes from hierarchies. A lot of it comes through these bottom up network structures. For example, like you mentioned the rule of law. Law itself is kind of like an emergent spontaneous um phenomenon. It's a it's a type of order which comes through this bottom up type of exchange. And you can say the same thing about language. There's no centralized structure which determines, you know, the the words or vocabulary we use it's another emergent phenomenon and uh social norms is another there's all these there's all these types of institutions which gradually evolve through these bottom-up networks and it's like you know if you had um a kissinger or someone trying to orchestrate those things you would get you know tyranny and authoritarianism and i think that's you know the perfect example of that is what happened with um you know, the, the, the extremes of hierarchy in the early 20th century with, you know, Hitler and Stalin and Mao. So and another one is like general technological innovation like uh, flight or electricity. These things were, you know, it wasn't just one person who created it. It was emerged a lot of people discovering things at the same time. But then that kind of raises the question, okay, like, well, when, is, when does it make sense for a, a great man to come in? It's, if it's not in these areas, where does it make sense? And I think that comes back to these this idea of entrepreneurship. It's, you know, you know that makes sense. Like Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, they did things that um, their coordination, their centralized structures make sense. They could value and they were, you know, susceptible to competition from other competing firms. So it's, it, it's yeah, it, the great man in one realm makes sense. The great man in another realm doesn't make sense if, if I'm making sense here.
0: Yeah and I think as well that that's you know there's so many people throughout human history not just running companies but you think about great leaps forward in terms of medicine and discoveries that are you know not I guess recept you know um, don't fit into that great man um, view of history Um, and I think you know there's just so many examples like that and Matt Ridley and you know Stephen Pinker talk a lot about this, about you know this is it's Matt Ridley, it's ideas mating. That's really like that's how society's innovated and improved, and we've had all these great leaps forward that we've had. And I haven't read it yet. Um, it's probably a book on the list, but Stephen Pinker's new book. Apparently, is at the front of that. There's a there's a whole list of people who are um, just been absolutely integral or central to human advancement, but who you'd never hear. About And I think just naturally people as well tend to emerge. You know, you've got if you've got a lot of people who have done a lot of great things that, um, you know, it, Steve Jobs, for example, you've got the Apple computer or you've got the iPod. It just gives something tangible, you know, Bill Gates with Windows and, um, you know, like if you have something tangible, especially a consumer product, you can attribute that to someone. And then that sort of falls into the the template of the great man view of history when... Really, it's a lot of, as you say, networks and a lot of people and this concept of this idea of... The idea is mating, which has actually given us innovation and the and the moves forward. Um, so just now to... Moving towards the end, gents. Um, so thinking about Australia specifically, and, um, Will, I know you're over in New York and you've been overseas for a while now, but um, just to be domestic for a little difference from your cosmopolitan lifestyle but how do you see the balance of your of impacts and networks and hierarchies in australian society now
2: yeah i'd um i'd really be i'd be interested to hear what um what you each think about this but uh, from from my understanding of you know early um australian settlement uh by the by the british you know that um at, at that time, you know Australia was a much more networked type, um, had a more networked type structure. Obviously, thinking about the the Indigenous Australians that would having a much more uh, networked based uh, society, and that um, a lot of uh, institutions uh, had to had to evolve and and develop from that from that early uh, society, and I think that Australia really follows quite a similar trace to the, um, the other uh, countries and broader trends that are um, uh, covered in the book in that um, Australian society became more hierarchical in the, in the early 20th century. You think about the, the economy being more centralised and, and controlled by, uh, by the government or, and, um, and large corporations or, or unions having much more power than they, than they do today. Uh, you know where we have a much more uh, free market um, open uh, society and uh, I think that that's the same in if you're looking at communications um, uh, that there's uh, there's been this uh, along with um, the rise of social media you know those sort of similar trends in the nature of, of communications in Australia you know one thing that I think might be uh, an example of a more networked based phenomena is the the declining vote for the Major parties in Australia, and the, these kind of insurgent politicians—not that they've displaced the, the major parties, but that there is that that sort of um, insurgent network-type uh, phenomena uh, growing—and it'll be interesting to see where those where those sort of trends uh, go
0: from here. Yep, That's some great points there. I think just to work backwards on it, it's um, yeah, the displacement—that's a really interesting way to look at. Um, you know, I guess the current state of politics here, not just here, but everywhere where you've had a lot of disruption and a lot of insurgency. Um, and I think a lot of that, at least how I can sort of make sense of it, is attributable to this sort of lack of trust and um, a decline in trust in a lot of different institutions. But um, And one of the things I think that, that you've got to have Um, I guess, and I touched on this before, some degree of correspondence between um, the law and the underlying norms and values in society. And I think when people, you know, you look, for example, a lot of inequality today, it gets brought up a lot. And a lot of people, I think, in Australia still trust or have faith in the system because they know that, you know, it's, it's basically fair. And I think when you lose that trust and you think that the game is rigged, that's when you'll have you know, probably a lot more scope for insurgency in terms of, you know, um, more networks forming, more disruption and that kind of thing. One of the things I've thought about recently actually is just, um, yeah, that network hierarchy um, dichotomy in terms of Australia's founding. So you're back to 1788 and it's kind of what was needed was kind of a balance. I think the Brits were like this in every colony that they established. We had actually um, a very you know, hierarchical rule of law, um, you know, 1788-89 was a time that you didn't really want to be testing the law um, in the early colony that after Phillips set up. You know, I remember that, you know, six Marines, for example, were hanged for stealing food, I think in 1799. Um, and, you know, there's a that was the sort of punishment for step for again for step for theft, uh, for robbery, any sort of thing like that. But at the same time, as the colony grew, you definitely needed elements of that network um, to come in and you know expand the frontiers to for farming, for agriculture, for sheep. You know, and then you look at the gold rush a lot, you know, about 50, 60 years later. Um, you know, there was sort of a, a, an interesting balance, and I think. Probably not as many people realised just how hierarchical Australia was um, as a military colony. Um, but then I think just interestingly, combining the two elements as well, and I think that's something that obviously was quite distinctively British. One of the things um, I sort of failed to mention before was how, you know, Britain is has been very unique in terms of economic um, and sort of political history in terms of having you know, the Industrial Revolution, but not having... You know, it's a lot of economic disruption without the political disruption, and I think that comes back to that point I was making about the legitimacy of the system, that if you have buy-in from people, if you're seeing, you know, wages and um, better, living, or better living standards, uh, more innovation, but you've got that sort of underlying sense of trust in the system, then um, that's something that can be um, incredibly important or incredibly stabilising, um, but then also clearly something that can be farmed out to other parts of the world, which the British were very successful at doing, and um, successful at doing in Australia.
1: Um, just to add on to what you're saying, sure. I think it's interesting you talk about Australia's early founding and its early history. One, um, I was thinking about one of the previous episode we did on federalism. And I think that's an example of like the tension between hierarchies and networks. You've got a, a hierarchical government, but the founders obviously saw the need to balance that with an element of decentralization by having power distributed between the states. And I think that's a an interesting you know, way that these things are never just one extreme or the other. They're a balance between the two. And another example you mentioned was the rule of law. And one thing I've been thinking about more recently is this distinction between Law and legislation, and by that I mean, like, if you think of law as like the common law, and you think of legislation as uh, centralized state-made law, there's kind of a, an element of networks and hierarch- hierarchies there. So you know, legislation is top-down, centralized, passed by the legislature, whilst common law is discovered like spontaneously through through judges and 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 cases. There's no there's no centralized body say there saying. This case is the now the judicial precedent it's a it sort of emerges over time through many cases and law, and judges and lawyers looking back at past past decisions and judgments and so I think for me, I find that interesting because I think we 've definitely moved more towards uh, parliament uh, state made type of law legislation and away from the more common law um, type law and that 's another tension between hierarchies and networks and the reason I raise that is because I think it's interesting to think about whether networks or hierarchies are overestimated or underestimated, and I think we underestimate the role of networks today and overestimate the role of hierarchies. And maybe another example of that is in um, is in technology itself. So one of the big topics everyone talks about today is artificial intelligence and this idea of you know you know driverless cars and the rise of robots and everything suddenly is going to be done by a centralized. Um, you know piece of software that's a very that's a that's a very hierarchical almost totalitarian viewpoint in one sense and then at the other extreme is maybe what blockchain is like complete um distributed decision making no one really in charge kind of like kind of like bitcoin there's no one there's no one running that software it's all it's all you know a bottom up emergent process so yeah, again, it's interesting to think about where hierarchies and networks are overestimated and underestimated, and I'd be keen to hear what you guys think about that that question as well.
2: Yeah, for me, uh, once you uh, are made aware of this uh, distinction or this spectrum between networks and, and hierarchies, uh, I think it becomes apparent that um, you know these these are everywhere, and that. Actually, you're a member of generally more networks than hierarchies, and that these sort of the, the network type phenomena are, are everywhere. And one example which we, you know, which we haven't talked about yet is the, the idea of networking itself as something that you do in your career, and actually that this is used as a as a term of you know making these connections with uh, with different sorts of people. Could be within your uh, organisation, your industry, more more broadly, and that this networking is a way to climb a hierarchy, which is kind of a, an, an interesting idea, or to um, to to have this have this impact. So it's just something to think about in in um, cultivating your own network, in and how that impacts on your you know, your personal life and your work life.
0: Yeah, it's a great point. I think I was thinking about the same thing before, just in terms of how this, yeah, this dichotomy, it can can apply to literally so many different things. But the point um, about, you know, federal and state relations in Australia is a good one about... um, And just, I think, the sort of state of play in terms of what... You know, I think you see this a lot in the US, and I've heard a lot of people comment on this about... um, the capacity or the propensity, pardon me, to just farm out decisions, and I think a lot of people, um, you know, it's it's for example, you know, I, I remember hearing Ben Sasse, who's a U.S. senator, talk about how much people want the executive to do things. It's so much easier for a, a senator or a congressman for the art uh, to ask the executive, so the president, to do something versus actually making a decision themselves because it's just more politically convenient. But I think as well, you know, we see the Supreme Court is probably a lot more, this is the US Supreme Court, it's been in the news a lot recently with the Kavanaugh thing of course, but that's, I think there's something deeper there about how politicised obviously it's become. You know, I don't think it was ever envisaged that it would be this body that was, you know, making such, so many critical decisions. And someone made a comment that if, if, you know, why do we need lawyers on there if they're if you know, if they're making decisions about you know life and designs on life more generally, We should have you know philosophers or priests or economists on there. Will you'd probably love a seat on there yourself <laughs> one day? Um, but you know, I think it's a, it's a fair point just in terms of considering how a lot of these institutions, which weren't probably designed to be making such critical decisions, have been, um, I guess, outsourced or relied upon so heavily to make decisions because, um, I guess. The network doesn't seem to be making that decision. One of the things, for example, just probably a, a clear example of this actually is, um, you know, free speech. I was listening to a great podcast with Jonathan Haidt the other day, and there was, the example that he gave was um, there was a you know um, it was a conference call. Uh, I think it was a job interview, and there was a panel, and then one of the persons, like after the person hung up. Uh, the person who they were interviewing was speaking really quickly and then someone said on the panel, oh, it's like she was on Ritalin. And then apparently one of the people on the panel complained, um, you know, because it was seen as a slight on, some, you know, mental health and it's seen as insensitive. So, and one of the points that he makes is that that's, you know, this this codification, this impulse to, to go to something, to, um, you know, to a, a rule, you know, or something like that or point to rules to regulate things, Um, versus whereas I guess, you know, previously people would have tended to have sorted these things out themselves or probably made a tougher call themselves uh, versus going or rushing to a hierarchy or appealing to a hierarchy to make a decision so I think that's an interesting dynamic that we see, yeah, not just at federal state relations but, Will, as you mentioned as well in, you know, your own network and your own professional life as well Uh, but then just some of the dynamics around free speech, it's once you're aware of this dichotomy, it's really, um, really interesting because it pops up everywhere.
1: Um, just building on that example of Jonathan Haidt, Sean, I mean, that I think is great in showing that what I'm trying to illustrate in terms of the the um, preference now towards like state-made hierarchical type law in terms of regulation. Like people are more, are more keen to turn to the government to regulate and solve their problems rather than the alternative, which is either through the courts or which is a more bottom-up judicial mechanism, or even through just um, so solving those problems uh, collectively on their own. Like, you know, you deal with those types of offences in a social norm sense rather than necessarily a regulatory sense. You know, you don't have to, you know, you go and have a conversation with the person, you say that offended me, or, you know, people get shunned for poor behaviour and, you know, manners that don't fit, uh, you know, custom and culture Rather than you turn into the state and say regulate this out of existence, and I think that yeah is a good example you, you've shown there.
0: Yeah, and like I think Jordan Peterson talks about this too in terms of trying to get precise on codifying interactions between people. It's very difficult to do that in a professional setting. You know, like is it do you know about you know you can't get within thirty centimeters of someone, and then it's like you kind of need some sort of principles, I guess, which guide the norms or which correspond with the norms that. Allow people to interact versus yeah, it gets very tricky when you're trying to um, codify or regulate these things.
2: Yeah, and I think that uh, you know, this is this is getting to this distinction between you know formal and informal um, ways of interacting, and that you know, hierarchies are much more likely to be formal type settings, whereas um, networks are much more informal and and you know, don't necessarily take the, um, take the place of the written, written rules in, in all circumstances. Uh, I think there's, there's uh, some appeal to a, um, you know, a hierarchical decision, for example, in a, in a, a political setting, because that's just a way of, of doing something. But, of course, it, it means that it can also be undone uh, as well quite quickly by, uh, by a change in the hierarchy or a, or a change in the political party. Whereas a, a more networked type change, I think that those things are much more likely to stick because there'll be this kind of groundswell of support on a, on a, on a broad basis rather than it just being being done uh, through some, uh, some stroke of a pen.
0: Yeah, and one of the exact, yeah, spot on, one of the examples that I neglected to mention before was, you know, if you're in an, in an organisation and you want to get something done, many of us have gone to the people that we know to get stuff done, and that's a nice little example of a workaround, not the people who might be the ones who are on paper in the hierarchy tree, um, but, yeah, you just sort of know that's that's exactly right. So it's, a, it's sort of a more sticky way of doing things, um, running a little insurgency in, in an organisation. Um, but... Um, Well, looking to wrap up now, gents. Um, Just what are your thoughts on the book itself, Um, just reading it and some of the um, chapters and things like that, just for any listeners out there? What are your raw thoughts? Well,
1: I hate to say it because I quite like Noel Ferguson, but I wasn't too impressed by this book.
0: (laughs) Um, Just be be gentle. Be careful.
1: Yeah. What do you do, the the sandwich? Praise on the outside? (laughs) Um, it was I love the idea of networks and hierarchies and I think drawing that distinction it's a really easy simple analogy of thinking about much deeper ideas um, like a lot of economists deal with this type of stuff, which is you know COSA's transaction costs and, and complex systems. I think so defining it in terms of networks and hierarchies I think is really clever and a really good starting point. My only problem is that the book I think is too shallow. like he doesn't go into enough detail about these the more interesting, theoretical questions about what this means for the process of economic change through time it's like you know if we recognize this this structure is at play there's networks and hierarchies when does one make sense when does the other make sense what's the interplay between the two how does this play out over time there's so many interesting questions there which he doesn't really touch and i get you know he's it's more of a mass market book so he's trying to just kind of give an introduction almost and touch on various periods in history and and how these how these ideas apply. I mean, maybe I'm being a bit harsh in the sense that that's useful for a lot of people. Maybe it's just my inclination for going deeper into this stuff. So, yeah, I I ended up feeling at the end of the book that I got I got most of the core ideas from listening to a couple of interviews he gave and looking at some lectures that he did online. So I'd almost guide people more towards that um, that material rather than having to
0: read you know his 400 page book. Yeah, fair enough. Um, yeah. yeah, Will, what are your thoughts to listeners?
2: Yeah, so similar to what Jordan was saying, there's a there's a lot in here, and there's a, a huge uh, swathe of history and, and many events within that that are covered in um, lots of short chapters. And so it um, it can feel a bit disjointed, and that the thread between them is not always evident to the reader, apart from it just being a survey of of an interesting example of a hierarchy or a network and it's really up to the reader to join these dots so um, but I think you know as we've as we've talked about this is a a really sort of interesting big idea in how to frame the world in this distinction between hierarchies and networks Uh, and uh, one thing that I did like was that um, Ferguson's obviously a, a fan of networks he calls himself the networked historian at one point but he's also uh, acknowledges the downsides of, of networks in, in some cases. So, you know, the certain networks can mean that you know a virus can spread rapidly through a population, or you know, bad ideas, panics, or anarchy can be you know stoked and easily flare up because of a, a network. So that's a, that's I think one sort of interesting point in that he's he takes a sort of um, a balance between them. And, you know, this leaves some really interesting questions about where, um, you know, where the sort of large technology companies uh, are going you know, and where the sort of uh, this current sort of trend towards networks, if that's going to lead to you know, more anarchy, as we've seen in, in periods in the past, or, you know, if we'll revert back to a more hierarchical structure. But, you know, those are sort of things that are provoked uh, by the book rather than um, you know, deeply addressed.
0: Yeah, just to pick up on the uh, points you guys both made. But, you know, I do like the short chapters. I think that they're, you know, like it does kind of motivate you to keep reading. Um, one of the things, just too, while I'm on that is um, this thing I'm reading a lot more in books, or sorry, I'm seeing a lot more in books now is for colons, um, brackets, dashes to be all over. the. Like, I think that's sort of, it, it's kind of just an interesting thing, like how, the sort of clean, clean kind of write, like for example, I'm a big, big, big fan of the economist Thomas Sowell, and he's just someone who's a very clean, crisp writer. Um, that kind of, it's kind of this swashbuckling tone a bit that you can see a lot more in books now. Um, so it, you know, that has dashes, it keeps the reader engaged, you're moving along, um, the shorter paragraphs. But then, as you mentioned, Will, there's not really, um, sort of any kind of thread it sometimes it seems with the shorter chapters and Jordan you alluded this, to this too. It's just more interesting information uh, versus it being actually kind of relevant. You touched on earlier in the episode too Jordan about Kissinger and anyone who knows Niall Ferguson knows that he's done, I think he's released the second biography of him, the second volume or if not he's pretty close to but He obviously has a huge knowledge on on Kissinger, and Kissinger features pretty prominently uh, within the book, too. And I think that's just a good example of someone who applies a lot of knowledge to something when it's not entirely relevant. Um, For example, I remember reading a great book by Niall Ferguson on um, empire, um, how Britain... I think how Britain made the modern world was the subtitle but there's a lot of that that I can see in this book and I think it kind of needs to be in the book but not as much as what it features and yeah there's a just a lot a lot in here it, and actually just reminds me too of a part of me a biography I read um by Samantha power on um Sergio Viero de Mello the late diplomat who was tipped to be head of the secretary secretary general part of me of the UN Um, and that's another just key example of that kind of writing or that kind of volume where it says there's a lot on, on the writer's knowledge, but not that is too relevant to what the actual content of the book is itself. So that'd be my chief criticism as there's a lot in there. But, um, you know, maybe if you're not into reading the whole thing, like Jordan mentioned, um, it'd be useful to look at some of his TED Talks or the podcasts. And I think that's what makes, um, podcasts in particular quite a useful way to absorb information where people have less uh, time or less of a commitment to read. And um, Look, speaking of podcasts, I'd like to thank you guys for joining me on this special episode. Um, The book we've been talking about is The Square and the Tower by Noel Ferguson. And um, I hope you've enjoyed the discussion. But uh, Jordan, thanks very much for joining me from Melbourne. Pleasure, Sean. thanks. Thanks again for having me. Excellent. And Will, thanks so much for joining me uh, from New York. We really appreciate you taking the time.
2: Great to chat with you both. Really enjoyed it.